Salutations, Sotans, Soda listeners. We are so excited to be back with you today. Right, Sarah? We're super excited. And when you said salutations, Sotans, and Soda listeners, and then you said we are so excited, I thought you were going to make some sort of new phrase to incorporate soda into we're soda excited, but then it kind of oh, sounds like you're saying we're, we're sorta only excited, and that's not true. So if anybody has ideas on how we can appropriate soda into the phrase, like being very excited to talk to you, please let us know. This week, we're going to combine the news and the critical discussion into one. Something happened at my work, which is that a piece has gone missing. Uh, a work in Desert X has vanished. That got me thinking about why is public art important? Why, what makes it vulnerable? Um, why put it out in the first place when it's liable to be vulnerable? Yeah. Those things. All very important. Those, it's, those, those are all very important aspects. And Sarah, you have, let me guess, an interview for us this week? It's so funny that you say that, Jason, because in fact I do. Wow. I do have an interview. I interviewed... Sophia Songmi. Sophia is a multidisciplinary artist who uh, combines illustration, drawing, painting, and textile design into their practice. Sophia's work focus, focuses heavily on personal experience and reality. It's really important to Sophia that the work produced represents their own experience and that it doesn't try to speak for anyone else. Just as an FYI, the work that Sophia and I discuss in the interview, which is called How to Be the Perfect Asian Wife, includes descriptions of imagery that may be upsetting for some listeners. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. I am too. It was a really, really excellent interview. And I know I say that every time, <laughs> but truly, I learned something new every time that I interview an artist. And uh, Sophia was no exception. It was a wonderfully in a wonderfully intense and insightful interview. Yeah, I have heard sound clips of that interview, and I completely agree. I'm excited to learn uh, from hearing it played back on this podcast. <laughs> on this podcast. On, <laughs> on soda. soda. Shameless plug. All right, should we, uh, yeah, should we get to the good stuff? So this week in the news, this comes from a place that is close to home, uh, my home where I live right now, and also my job. Uh, a, a piece of work from the Desert X exhibition, which we have talked about in a previous episode, where a project that I'm currently working on, uh, a piece has vanished. It has gone missing. Uh, this piece was called Halter by Eric Mack, and it was essentially fabric that was given by Missoni, um, which Eric draped over a abandoned gas station near the Salton Sea in the Coachella Valley. And there are plenty of images on of this um, this piece. Um, it it was very large scale. The there were very large swaths, yards and yards of fabric uh, sewn together, different patterns, colors, textures, and it was a big enough area of of textile to be able to drape over. You know that kind of 
protrusion um, over a gas station and kind of wrap around the back of it. And it was uh, it was held down by by ropes and cords, and the cords were kind of strung to a nearby sign to allow it to to sway in the wind and and move in the air. And you could walk below it, among it, go under it, you know, around it, whatever. Uh, so this piece was, um, in a pretty remote area and it, uh, people saw it the day before and then the, the next day it, it was gone. Uh, we do not know what happened. We don't know what the motive was. All we know is that it is no longer there. There were trace amounts of fabric and rope left over, and there was traces of fire being present, and some of the uh, material turned to ash. Okay. So it wasn't like... Because when you first described this to me, I was thinking it was like a shrink-wrapped garage. No, <laughs> it's, like, it's very wow, that's intense. loose and flowy <laughs> okay. and okay. breathable. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. And so it was very reactive to like the desert environment and like you could feel the wind kind of blowing through it and you could walk underneath it and okay. All Precisely. Right. I gotcha. Okay. Yes. So, so what, what percentage of the fabric, cause it's just the fabric that is missing. Right. Yes. I mean, the structure itself is still there, which the structure was just the, you know, support that the piece was put on. I do feel like like that's an important detail. Right. (laughs) That the gas station still remains. It's not as though the building is taken, even though the building was part of the work. It's just the fabric. Yes, just the fabric. The building was, it's, it's an old gas station. It was there before. It continues to be. Shall persevere. Mm-hmm. Shall persevere. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. But the fabric right. was taken or, yeah, it is missing. The Yes. The fabric, most of it is no longer there. Okay. Um, and so that is all the facts that we have now. I mean, this will air in about a week and a half, so maybe something else will have happened. But just Ooh, as yeah. of the time that we are recording this, that's that's all we know. Mm-hmm. And it just got me thinking about the the purpose and the function um, of public art and how vulnerable it is. Why why public art? Why go through uh, the effort of putting up public art when it is you know so likely to be acted upon by people? Um, why is it important to put out some, a temporary art into the public? Um, and this is just in general. We, we have a lot of examples of this that happen in the Twin Cities as well, such as the Spoonbridge and Cherry getting vandalized, such as um, the sculpture being stolen from the Arboretum. You know, there's, there's plenty, you know, and this happens anywhere. Anytime you have public art, you know, it's... it's public art is is vulnerable to being acted on by people basically anything that can be mobile is there's a chance that it's going to be mobilized at some point i mean these are you know the spoon pigeon cherry was was vandalized a couple of years ago and somebody uh i believe climbed up into the spoon portion and spray painted something um something political uh, but a piece of it wasn't removed. But the piece from the Arboretum was actually stolen. Um, it was this this sculpture that had been donated 
um, of a woman and, and she was, she was small enough to be mobilized. And so she was stolen. Um, so they, yeah, public art has the risk of being both vandalized and taken or removed from its original portion of, well, taken or removed from its original site. Even though public art is able to be vandalized or removed, it is still important to, you know, have public art. The chance that public art can be uh, altered or taken by people uh, does not uh, supersede the, the need for public art to be there in the first place. It's just something that you have to accept. Um, I think a lot of artists, when they're working with public art, they realize that there's, you know, a chance that something could happen to their piece. And most of the time, artists have a plan for how they prefer their piece to be handled if it, you know, is something happens to it. You know, um, if they, the artist can say uh, if they prefer to replace it, if they prefer to repair it, um, or if they prefer to maybe leave it be because they're, they accept the, you know, changes, alterations as a part of the work and its history. Um, or, you know, they want it to stay that way as documentation and kind of a, a live archive of what has happened with the piece over time. An organic timeline of the development of the piece. And in some cases, Temporary artworks are put up in public. You know, sometimes you have things like the Spoonbridge and Cherry, which is, you know, a staple of the Minneapolis art world and was put there with the intent to be there for a very long time and shall continue to be there for a very long time. There are other circumstances, such as Northern Spark, where Temporary works of art can go on display, and those are vulnerable to the exact same kind of damages or alterations or theft that a permanent installation makes. So why, you know, kind of why, <laughs> why even try <laughs> if it, uh, why even bother if it's just going to get ruined? Why would you do it in the first place? Well... Um, as you were talking about why even try with public art, I was thinking about the alternative in this particular scenario, which is to install a piece um, or have a piece installed inside of a gallery or museum type situation, which comes with its own built-in hierarchy, uh, process, artistic challenges and limitations. And with public art, the limitations of space and material often do not exist, um, but the artist may even have more freedom in concept and idea and execution. And so in that way, public art is an important facilitator of artistic expression that is um, not as constricted as it is in a museum, institution, or gallery setting. Of course, and this ties into our conversation last time we posted an episode, which is accessibility. Absolutely. Public artwork is accessible to the public, believe it or not. Literally. <laughs> it literally is. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a double-sided coin of it is available to everyone, 
um, at all times. And because it is available to everyone at all times, uh, it makes it vulnerable to being altered um, in some way, either in its representation (laughs) or in its location. Uh, Right. Um, But, you know, just like... um, a museum has, you know, generally, unless you're a non-collecting institution, of course, has a permanent collection. Uh, things that are meant to be installed long term will be there for a while. And then there are also rotating exhibitions, things where you're bringing in uh, what's new, um, things that you're bringing in that don't exist in your city, but you want to bring to your local public. And that's also the same with temporary public art as well. Um Even though it is, you know, sometimes ephemeral and it, you know, maybe isn't made out of the most uh, long-lasting materials, um, it still has the same, you know, kind of kind of virtue and purpose as a as a temporary exhibition in a museum. You know, um, either that it's uh, coming through to. Uh, bring, you know, you're bringing in an artist from another city to do a temporary installation. Um, You can have a site and refresh it with new artwork continually instead of just, you know, putting something uh, in a place permanently and having that be the recurring experience of a particular space. So there are lots of reasons why temporary installations also belong in the public sphere. Very well said. So in summary, public art is important because it makes it accessible. It gives a city uh, life and definition, such as the icon of the Spoonbridge and Cherry and, you know, how much pride that brings to Minneapolis. Um, Temporary exhibitions outdoors, you know, brings new and fresh things to the public. It refreshes a space. Um, It also gives artists an opportunity to work um, at a different scale and and in different elements and embrace the outdoors and nature and what effect that might have on people. And all of these things come along with the chance that, you know, that somebody will enact <laughs> their own vision on the piece's uh, appearance. Enacting or, yes, course, their location. own vision or perhaps <laughs> altering the location of said piece. Um, yes. <laughs> and how, what the next step is taken is something that is largely decided by the artist, um, the organization that commissioned the work, maybe mm-hmm. if somebody owns the work, but yeah, largely the artist first and then in collaboration which with these That's other true. people or who are actually I do want to say state. contemporary yes. contemporary public art specifically is one of the one of the aspects of contemporary art that is most focused on artist intent. Um, I think because in many cases, the artist is still living, but also because there's there's real considerations about how the artist would like their piece to be remembered. Um, and so we have the opportunity to respond to that intent, which is really nice with public art. Absolutely. You're very correct. Thanks. You're welcome. All right, Sarah. Well, yeah, I would love to hear an interview. I just really have a hankering. Do you, do you have a hankering? Is it about that time? I, I do. It's hankering something fierce. (laughs) 
<laughs> Yeehaw. Okay, that's fine. Um, no, let's let's get to my interview with uh, with Sophia. And again, I would like to remind everybody that the work that Sophia and I discuss includes descriptions of imagery that may be upsetting for some listeners. All right, let's get to it. Right now? Right now. So I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Sophia Songmi. Sophia is an artist, um, an illustrator, and performer living and working in the Twin Cities. I have bribed her with tea Mm -hmm. and access to my cat. (laughs) Love a cat. Sophia, thank you so much for coming over and being in my space and being willing to share your experience and your practice with us. I really appreciate it. Oh my God, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So let's, let's start from the beginning as I, as I tend to do in these situations. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about, about where you grew up and your, your development and, and how you started to practice art in the first place? Hi everyone. My name is Sophia. I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I was actually born here. I am the product of a Chinese and British immigrant mother. And mm-hmm. then my dad, he is adopted Korean, and they met here. So I was born here. So I, I do have U.S. citizenship. But then it's interesting because then I, was, I moved to Shanghai when I was in second grade. That's kind of my cultural heritage. So that aspect very much is a focus of my work that idea of what is home, what is belonging to certain cultures. I started drawing when I was four. I drew stick figures. The patriarchy was strong in my upbringing at the time, so I drew the cute boys getting married to me. That was my first drawings. I'm not proud of it, but I drew a lot of marriage stick figures. Then I went to China brought into my hemisphere of drawing, stop drawing marriages and started drawing more people and what people were doing. And So then I came back to college, very big culture shock coming from a huge international metropolitan city like Shanghai. I get my art major and through that time I go through racial consciousness and I, I'm like, oh, I'm not white. <laughs> Funny enough, Realizing I'm not white, understanding my role in anti-blackness and perpetuating patriarchy and internalized hate was a big deal in college. And so I think the work we're actually focusing on today was really that combination of me trying to understand where to go from here. This work was really like, okay, so what am I going to do now with this privilege that I have now learned I have and also the privileges I learned that I don't have and moving forward like that. You went to McAllister specifically yes. for studio art? Is that specifically right? for studio art. Okay. I Good for Sophia back then not going straight to art school because I think I wouldn't have had the exposure I needed to fully understand what I wanted to do with my art if I had just gone to somewhere like MCAD. Because I feel like it's very important to focus on craft, but if you don't know what you're making your craft for, you lose out on creativity because why am I focusing on drawing this teapot so perfectly when I am not drawing it for any particular purpose so I think liberal arts college really helped me find that awareness of everything you do unfortunately or fortunately will impact others around you so it's important that you have the understanding when you're making work the understanding that everything that you do is impacting or not impacting those around you how did that come up in the work that you made in undergrad 
Good question. I think it started by saying to myself, look, I'm not going to make work about other people's stories because I don't know how that's one going to affect them. And I don't know how it's going to affect the way others view them. It's also not my place. This has also come about by watching how, especially on Instagram, how you will see any old man just drawing some woman any other way for no reason. Like, why does she have to be naked all the time in that particular, you know, Western painting pose? And it's just the audacity. First of all, the audacity. It's not your place. It's not your body. It's not your experience. So why do you think you can just draw that? Art is so powerful because it's what you see and how a viewer interprets, and that's where the power lies. I'm not gonna draw a black woman because I'm trying to give voice to that person because that's not how that works. I'm actually taking away an the truest interpretation, which is that black woman drawing herself in the light she yes. wants to, in the yes. light they want to. So that was how it came up in my work. I started with myself <laughs> because not only does that help me work on myself, but it also is the truest form of honesty as an artist to make work about yourself. So I think it's like two part. One, you work on yourself, talking about yourself, making work about yourself. But number two, you're showing other people that it's okay to do that. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it does. I mean, using, using your experience and, and focusing on that for yourself, for lack of a better word, is a, is a good example for others on how they can take that journey on their own. Yes. I think that's, that's very well said. Let's talk about your capstone project. How to be the perfect Asian wife. Yes. Uh, if you could please give us in detail a description of, of what it's like as a as a visitor to walk in and, and what would you see and what would you experience in this piece? So as a viewer, you walk up to a space. There are white walls surrounding only one entrance. This entrance is covered by a large shower curtain, but it is dyed red, very blood red, and there are tendrils of braids like cascading down it, and you see faint red handprints at the bottom, and the bottom seems to be stained almost as if like it has gone through excrement. Before you even enter the space, there is language that tells you, please remove your shoes, please respect the space. You, as a viewer, take off your shoes, place them to the side where there's a shoe rack, you walk in, but you must touch the curtain before you walk in. So it has to touch some part of your body. You can't get around it. You can't get around it unless you have to physically push it aside or go under it, touching your back. Now you have entered the space. You see it has very, very, a very high ceiling. And there are three different walls. In the corner, there is a window, which also has a long braid, braided textile material cascading down. And underneath that is a small table with a rice bag. So you're not sure where to go. So you start with the first, you start with the first drawing on your right. You'll see a handwritten text next to a large scale figure drawing that has a female presenting body somehow mutilating themselves. When you look closer, you see that the text is addressing the ladies in the room. So all the drawings, these large scale drawings are like 49 inches by like 50. So they're pretty large and they are set so that you have to kind of tilt your head up a little bit. They are a mixture of charcoal, high realism, figure drawing, 
the hair cascading and like surrounding the figure is very saturated ink and it's like a mixture of quill scratches and lines but also you see that the ink is also put on with brush strokes so it's this very agitated energetic but also anxiety inducing hair um, movement all over the figure the figure is like stuffing kimchi up their vagina the other one they're plugging a rice cooker into their into their stomach and no the plug goes into their vagina and they're holding they're holding the rice cooker and you can't see their head and it almost seems as if the, the figure is like being forced out of the page and the final horizontal drawing is the person is stuffing their own head into the rice cooker and the, the cord that was once tied into their vagina now ends in a very a glowing red cabbage and it's pulsating in, in the foreground of the picture and the person's legs are in like a straddle and the hair is almost taking over the presence of the page. Looking at these images, you can't see any faces. Yes. There's no distinct identifying features. I mean, really, the focus is on the limbs, sometimes the torso, the hair more specifically, mm-hmm. takes up a large portion of each of these works. And in the kimchi one, it's all physically within the drawing connected. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is touching each other and then the hair is weighting everything down. Yeah. And you have some dialogue that went along with the kimchi piece. Yes, they're all consecutive. So I labeled them all one, two, three, these, these texts. So the first one goes, kimchi prenatal regime. Ladies, stand out this Lunar New Year as best wifey by literally coating your uteruses with kimchi. You don't want your prodigal sons to be born not liking the taste of centuries of culture. So, really stuff the kimchi further than the time your Korean literature professor forced the highlighter up you when you refuse to kiss him back in middle school. You need to make sure your son's birthing chamber can acclimate him to his future national inheritance. The world is his after all. So don't worry. The burn is only temporary compared to the long-lasting honor you'll have as a perfect wife. Make the other wives jealous and the other husbands wish you were theirs. And for those mixed-race mothers, Maybe you'll finally be accepted by your husband's family if kimchi finally runs through your bloodstream. So it's kind of like this condescending, overbearing internal voice, and you're not really sure if it's your internal dialogue, is it an ad, is it, is it like a parent, is it an outside force that's directing you. And this kind of text follows each of the different drawings, and they get increasingly, increasingly more violent, till by the end where the figures stuffing their own head into the rice cooker and having to hold on to de- near life to the umbilical cord attached to the fetus or the, the, the lettuce at mm-hmm. the end. The text is literally saying, now be a good girl and stick your face in. Try to close the lid as much as possible so your neck starts to split. Know that this will make the process more efficient for your husband to love his new wife. He'll tell you when your face has been cooked long enough because the goal is to scar you so bad that you disgust him that he'll avoid you. He needs to benefit from his new wife without distraction. So, <laughs> why the... F- heavy. It is, it is very heavy. Why then the focus so much on marital relationships and childbirth? This is both a cultural critique, but also a overarching systems critique. It's talking about the patriarchal and capitalistic world we live in today, but also the idea that women are reproductive machines and their only value is 
the value they bring as a wife, a producer of children, a producer of homely labor, a producer of sexual pleasure to their, their husband. It's also a commentary on the way these messagings are fed to us and how we're inundated in so many facets of the media that this is our rightful place in the world. When you look at these drawings, they're almost surreal and they're actually kind of beautiful in like a sick way because the skin is translucent, you know, mm -hmm. the, the kimchi is glowing and, you know, red, yellow and orange mixed together to form these kind of eerily kind of creepy, almost alien-like structures within the jars. And you, you can't help but look in grotesque and you're like, you're stuck in this moment of like, should I be liking this? Should I be accepting this? Is this gross? Is this how it's supposed to be? And isn't that media? You see so many commercials where a man is presented a certain way, but then the female is sexualized to the nth degree. And every single moment she is in a commercial or a standing still picture, the way she arches her back, the way she is opening her mouth, her gaze, the way she, the, the fixation on, you know, youthful women. These are all grooming mechanisms to make us feel that if I look like this, if I do this, then I am valued finally. Yeah, I will be accepted. I will be accepted if I do this. Yeah. In the writings that that you just read, you really captured the almost disgustingly cheerful tone of oh, advertisements yeah. that are like, you need to look younger, you should buy this. Yeah. Um, it is simultaneously a, both a social and a capitalistic commentary. Definitely. And then when paired with these powerful images, it's almost as if if the viewer was to read these things first, they might get an image in their mind, and then the image that you present is so much more violent so I talked a lot about the negative, the scary parts of this exhibition. Once you look through everything, I give you a place of solitude and solace where you go through these many different small comics within a rice bag and they're uplifting, empowering, and genuine moments from my everyday life. And so you have a moment of stillness to look through something that's not as graphic as someone stuffing their head in a rice cooker. People appreciated them having to go through a very traumatic journey, but then coming to an end of, okay, despite all this, the will to keep living is revolutionary and stuff like that. You've, you've created not only physical pieces mm -hmm. and accompanying didactics, but you've also created an encompassing experience where you are taking into account how the viewer might react and feel about yes. the violence that you're depicting and then giving them something peaceful at the end that is also still true yes. to your experience. Yes. That is so kind. We draw and we, we speak about all these like harsh realities, but so much all the time is not going to help anybody. So you're going to need to show some compassion to the viewer at some point. If people wanted to find you online, uh, where could they do that? And, and what's coming up next for you? So... Y'all should follow me on my Instagram. It's songmi underscore x, so S-O-N-G-M-I underscore x. This is where I'm most active. And what's coming up next this summer at the Catherine E. Nash Gallery at the U of M, I am showing some work. It'll be a book, still using a small table, which y'all will sit down at, and there will be cascading hair nailed to a wall and tiny, tiny surprise little illustrations that you have to like move the hair aside to look at. When When is when that is happening? In the summer. In the summer. 2019. I can't wait okay. to see what you do next. This has been 
so wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you again. Thank you so much Thank you for, for sharing yourself with us. Oh my God. And we're done. Oh. for joining us soda listeners you can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com we're also on instagram and facebook at stateoftheartspod or search for soda podcast you can find episodes of state of the arts on itunes google play stitcher and soundcloud please rate review subscribe and share with your friends we have a patreon there's a donation tab on our website donating to the patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast and as always our music is provided by the von tramps also recording um but yeah so now i am finally taller than somebody (laughs) wait so how tall are you i am five five which is the average for the american female five five is the average five five is the average i also have the average shoe size which is which is an an eight (laughs) so you're the average height i (laughs) and you're the average you have the average shoe size, which I'm very I am jealous of. average from top to bottom. You know what they say? <laughs> if you want the uh, the pinnacle of mediocrity, Jason McKenzie is is your person. No, but how can there be a pinnacle of mediocrity if you're at the pinnacle of something? Does that make you <laughs> more than mediocre? Like, are you, does that make you the most middling of all the middling? Or does that make you, does that mean that you exceed expectations? You exceed. At being mediocre. Yes. But you're, but it's not even, I think you move solidly outside of the mediocre category because you've broken all the rules of mediocrity and therefore do you're not just, belong anymore. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Does that, but then does that mean that you're bad at being mediocre? Does it actually move you down because you're so good at being mediocre that you're like, you're too good at it? Well, no. That means that you're being bad at being medium. I mean, I disagree. If we, if we put this into a visualization where mediocrity exists on a scale of like negative 10 to positive 10, where negative 10 is the least amount of mediocrity you could possibly have and zero is being average. And then like 10 is being like the most mediocre, mediocre, the most mediocre, you have moved to an 11 because you have surpassed mediocrity. And so in surpassing mediocrity, you have not lost any mediocrity. You gained so much that you've moved off the scale. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. But then where am I? Am I just in this like purgatory worldless void of the mediocre? Oh, I hadn't really considered that before I I made that analogy. What is I just threw like, you where off am I? What is my personality? What is happening? <laughs> this is like we need like quantum physics of mediocrity here right now. I just went into a black hole of averageness. Oh no. Oh no. I really want to make some kind of reference to the Higgs boson particle right now, but 
I don't like, where is the core of, of norm core? You know? Oh. That's, oh, man. How do you find it? Does anybody know? Where the core of Normcore is, and everybody's like, "Um, "You're a podcast. It is so boring Um, and average." Aren't you supposed to be talking about art right now? (laughs) I don't listen to hear you guys talk about your height and your ascension past to the highest point of mediocrity. I'm not entertained, but I'm not not entertained. Like, this is the most, you know, neutral that I feel about a podcast ever. On a scale of being entertained, they're at a zero. <laughs> no! No, it's happening. It's happening again. It's the cyclical spiral that assume, consumes its all. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Oh, boy. Oh. Wow, that's, that just really stirred up some existential dread for me right there. <laughs> I have no existential dread.